So I have a really important question to ask to start off with, and I thought about it this morning as I was walking out on stage. Has anybody else's head gotten fatter as they've gotten older? Because I just had to buy extra wide glasses so they could fit on my huge noggin. The funny thing about that joke is I completely said it just on a cuff as I walked out here. One of my doctors happens to be in the room. He caught me afterwards, and he was like, uh, I'm going to have to start measuring your head from this point forward because that could be dangerous. I'm like, it was a joke. I, I mean, I've always had a fat head. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Anyway, we're... We're in week two of our series, You're Not the Boss of Me, and, and really it's the subtitle that kind of sets up the tone and the direction for the series, so let's look at that together. The subtitle is this, How to Say No, this is kind of a how-to series, help you figure out how to do this, how to say no to the emotions that compete for control. If you missed last week, kind of the easiest way to catch up is always just downloading the relevant app. You can download that at the App Store, or you can watch on demand on YouTube or on our website. Uh, but really, you should catch up because these messages, they kind of build on each other, and really it'd be helpful for you to kind of get a grasp of everything that's going on if you, were, if you were caught up on what we've been talking about. And I didn't do this last week. I always try and do this. If I'm ever using a series that somebody else has taught before, I always try and do this. But I didn't give credit last week, but I wanted to. That a lot of the content from this series came from one of our partner churches. It's a church that we're partnered up, uh, with out of Atlanta. I'm super proud to be partnered with this church, North Point Community Church. They, they did this series a few years back, and so it's been really helpful for me as I prepare for this series this, uh, this time around. But I, I, I do that. I say that even though I know I could have gotten away with it. Right? I, I know that you, knowing me, would have assumed it's just my genius, right, that came up with all this great content that we're going to be speaking about over the next five weeks, which leads me to this question. What would you do? What would you do if you knew you could get away with it? What would you do if you knew you could get away with it? If there were no constraints, right? Have you ever, have you ever seen a survey or like a, maybe it popped up on social media, somebody walking around asking people these questions on video or something? And, and they, they ask these questions and, and they're asking people, hey, hey, if there were no constraints, if there was uh, nobody would find out, there were no social constraints or no laws that would get you in trouble and no shame to feel afterwards, what would you do? Like what would it be that you would do if no one would find out you could get away with it? And the answers, man, they are freaky. Really, really terrifying. And so the way we're going to start off this morning is I'd like you to turn to your neighbor, let them know what that answer is for you, and then that's, well, <laughs> we're not going to do that. Obviously, we're not going to do that. If you're new here, sorry, didn't mean to freak you out there for a second. Mostly because if you did, the person next to you doesn't really want to know, and then we'd all be switching seats and trying to get next to people that aren't as crazy as the person sitting next to you, and that'd be kind of chaotic. Because we already know that without the external constraints, without the fear and the shame that we would feel if we did that, with all that removed, that's when, that's when our hearts are exposed. And suddenly we discover what's actually inside there. Like, what's actually inside of us that we just haven't actually taken the time to think about? In fact, when I asked the question a few minutes ago, there was something that you thought, and you couldn't even keep yourself from thinking it in church, that you thought that kind of freaked you out. But thankfully, for all of us in the room, thankfully, we've learned to uh, control our behavior, right? To monitor our behavior. It's because of culture or our upbringing or whatever it is. But we can control our behavior. We, like I mentioned last week, we control our behavior to get jobs. We control our behavior to get a date, and hopefully a second date. We control it to get married and certainly control it to stay married. We can control our behavior. But mostly, mostly for most of us, it's unfortunate. But we haven't really learned to monitor or control what goes on inside our hearts. On the contrary, in fact, our culture is constantly pushing. It's constantly pressing on us, telling us what? Follow your heart, right? Follow your heart. But let me ask you this question. Is that a good idea? 
It all depends on what's in there, right? I mean, you're the one who knows what you answered that question with just a second ago. You're the one who knows what's actually going on inside there. And Jesus had this to say. We looked at this verse last week. It's kind of the overarching verses that we're going to be using throughout this series. He says this, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body, which we so crudely joked. I mean, I so crudely joked about what he's actually talking about, making the joke with his disciples, you know, poopy joke there. And then he goes on. He says, but the things that come out, and this is what I thought was so funny. You got to remember, Jesus' disciples were teenagers, and he makes a poopy joke, and the next word is but. I thought it was funny. I don't know. He says, but the things that come out of a person's mouth, the things that come out of a person's mouth, come from the heart. They come from the heart, and these are the things that actually defile a person. It's what comes out of a person's mouth. It's, 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 what, it's what comes out of him because it's already in them. It's these things that defile a person, and it defiles them because it puts them at odds with God. But we, we found out last week it puts them at odds with God because ultimately, and almost every time, it puts us at odds with people, people that God loves. Jesus went on to say this, for out of the heart come evil thoughts. And Jesus is kind of equating our heart with our thoughts here. He says, from out of the heart come evil thoughts of murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. The, these are the things that actually defile a person. If you remember the Apostle Mark, he tells the exact same story in his gospel. But he adds a few to the list. And he says, greed and malice and deceit and folly. How many of you, when you kind of answered that question for yourself in your brain, how many of your answers would have fallen into one of these categories? And all of these actions, all of these words, they begin with a thought, and the thought begins from the heart. They come out of us because they're already in us. Now, this whole idea, it actually explains something that we've all experienced and we know to be true. This explains why seemingly otherwise kind, good-hearted, loving people suddenly do or unexpectedly say terrible and hurtful things. This is just kind of a side note for you or for any of us in the room who might be starting a new relationship or maybe you're starting a new job or you got a new boss or maybe you're just simply starting a new friendship with somebody who on occasion, and as you're getting to know them, that on occasion they, they say or they do things that as far as you know seem completely out of character for who they are. You should pay attention to that because when they say, oh man, I'm so sorry, I have no idea where that came from. Well, you lean in real close and you go, I do. Pastor Matt told me where that comes from. <laughs> and that'll really get him, you know. <laughs> anyway, when you say the reason it came out is because that's what's in you. Let me describe it this way for more of the visual people in the room. Shaking this glass container, tipping this glass container does not determine what comes out of it. What's already in here determines what comes out of here. Let me say it again. Shaking this or like applying pressure to the top or tipping it over does not determine what comes out. Shaking this only exposes what's already in there. And so it is with you, and so it is with me, and so it is with all of us and, and the people around us in our relationships with us. What, what comes out of us is what's already in us. And so it's something worth paying attention to. But the really big question is, can anybody catch a Skittle? No? All right. Yeah, well, that's ever. I tried. King Solomon, King Solomon, he was the king of Israel. He lived a long, long time before Jesus' time. So way, way, way before Jesus. And, 
And he, he was known to be one of the wisest men to ever live, if not the wisest man to ever live. And he wrote a bunch of statements. Uh, he, he wrote an entire document about how to live wisely. We know it as the book of Proverbs. He, he had this to say. He says this, above all else. And he knew a lot. He said a lot. He wrote a lot all about how to live wisely. And he says, hey, above all that, above everything else I've ever said, guard your heart for everything you do. Everything you say, all of your actions, they, they flow from it above all things. All the things I've written, all the things I will write later in the future, he says, guard your heart. Well, why? Because everything, everything comes from it. Everything flows from it. So in addition to monitoring your behavior, which we're all pretty good at, in fact, most of you will sit in rows for the next 20 minutes or so pretending like you're listening to me, thinking about something completely different. That's fine. In fact, I remember my son Carson told me last week after my message, he said, hey, if you saw Joe looking at his phone, he was taking notes. But if you saw Mitchell, he was watching a volleyball game. So <laughs> we've all learned to behave, but, but Solomon says, and Jesus says, as we just looked at, looked at it, it goes far beyond behavior. We need to monitor our hearts because what's really in here is eventually going to come out of here. What's in your heart will eventually spill out onto those closest to you. And this is why this whole idea is such a big deal. Guarding our hearts, it, it involves cleaning out the junk, the toxins that are already in there, as well as keeping them out. And, and so today I wanted to look at one thing. I wanted to look at one thing in particular that all of us need to know how to deal with. And all of us have lived enough life, no matter how old or young you may be, we've lived enough life to have experienced some of this, to, to carry some of this. I, I'm sure we all carry a little bit of this in our life. The question is, are you going to let it be the boss of you? Has it been the boss of you, and are you going to try to make it not the boss of you? Because we've all lived long enough to accumulate plenty of it. So today, today I want to talk about guilt. Guilt is an emotion. And because it's an emotion, you feel guilt. At least you should, unless you're a narcissist or something, but you should feel guilt. Guilt is the emotion that's associated with acknowledging the fact that we've done something wrong. There's all kinds of different guilt. We probably know of some, but one of them is false guilt. False guilt is just simply this idea of like you had a thought about doing something or Maybe you considered doing something, you didn't do it, or maybe you thought you did something and it really didn't turn out that way, but it doesn't matter. You still feel guilty. That We're not going to really talk about this false guilt idea because we got plenty of the other one. The other one is real guilt. Real guilt. You really did it. You really hurt him, or you really hurt her, or you really said that. And so you have this real guilt, and you got to figure out how to deal with it. And then there's this one. We have suppressed guilt. Suppressed guilt, where again, just like real guilt, we really did do it. We really did hurt them. We really did hurt her. Uh, but we've created something new. We've, we've written a new narrative, right? We, we've written a new story. And so this new story allows us to live our lives and pretend as if none of it ever happened. This new story allows us to bury that far enough down that we don't have to think about it every day. It goes a little bit like this. Well, it wasn't just me. They had something to do with it. it was, well, they participated in this as well. <laughs> I was only 20. Right? I was only 20. Well, I was only a college freshman. It was just my first job, right? It was just my first. I didn't really know any better. My dad was that way. My grandfather was that way. I'm sure Adam was probably that way. It's not my fault. And so we create this narrative, and this narrative, it goes over and over and over in our heads, and it allows us to distance ourselves as far as we can from actual guilt so that we can suppress it enough that we don't have to deal with it. But 
Here's the thing that you know to be true. Here's what we're going to talk about. And as uncomfortable as it is, guilt, denying it or being defined by it, simply it empowers it. It gives it power that it shouldn't have in your life. Guilt always throws us off balance. Guilt will always become the boss of you if you allow it. And here's why. Because guilt, it it creates a debt-debtor relationship. It creates a debt-debtor relationship either within ourselves where we know we've done something wrong. And so we feel in ourselves this debt-debtor relationship that we've got to take care of it. That we've got to fix it. That we've got to make it better. Every act or every wrongdoing that we've done towards another person is somehow, in some way, it's an act of theft. We, We either stole their childhood or we stole their time or we took their money or we stole their reputation. We take something from them, whether it's physical or emotional. And so what do we do? We owe them something. We have a terminology. We use it for everything in this situation. You know it as well as I do. Here's the term. I owe him or I owe her an apology. I took something and I need to give it back. I can't give back what I took exactly. I can't can't give back the time I took. I can't give back the self-esteem I took. I can't give her her husband back. I can't give her the time back with her kids. But I took something. I owe her. I owe him something. And I don't know how I can make it up to them. But somehow, somehow I owe a debt to them. But here's the trick. (laughs) This is what's so difficult about all this. We don't actually experience guilt like a debt. We experience guilt like a weight. And this weight, it throws us off balance. This unresolved guilt that we try and live our lives with, that we try and tell the story around so that we can function enough in life, it, it throws us off balance in our parenting. Because of our guilt, we overparent or we underparent. It throws us off in our relationships. We either push too hard in a relationship or we withdraw so much that we can't even have a relationship. It throws us off balance in our ability to forgive and our ability to love. Because we experience guilt as a weight, it keeps us off balance in everything. We have a term for this one as well. Once it's finally resolved, once you finally figured out how to pay that debt, which I don't think you can actually do, but once you finally dealt with it, what do we say then? Oh, man, it just feels like a weight has been lifted off me. Guilt. Guilt is a weight we carry everywhere we go. You may have picked up guilt at work, but you carried it home with you. You may have picked it up at school, but, man, I'm telling you, it went home with you. You may have picked it up in college. But, but you carry it back with you. You may have picked it up on a business trip, but it travels home with you. And if we don't resolve it, if we don't learn to deal with it, if we, if we don't connect the dots that I'm going to try my best to connect for you in just a little bit, guilt evolves. It evolves into something very different. It manifests itself into something very different. Guilt becomes anger. We have a whole week that we're doing on anger, but I've moved it far enough away in case I say some of the same stuff. You'll forget by then anyway. So anyway, <laughs> you're, you're angry with yourself. You're disappointed with yourself, and, and now you're constantly disappointed with the people around you. you. You didn't live up to your own expectations, and now nobody else around you can live up to your expectations either. And the sad thing is as guilty people, people who carry that weight, they rarely make that connection. <laughs> you see, g- guilty people re- rarely ever connect the fact that their guilt is what's causing their anger. See, their, their frustrations about themselves, their failures, their own disappointments, they've written a new story for that. 
They, they've got that buried way below that story they've written for themselves. But your disappointments, your failures, they sit right in front of their face. They're plain as day to them. But I'm going to give some grace. Those of us that refuse to face our guilt, we do it for a good reason. I understand the reason. I think you'll understand the reason. And because if we face our guilt, we stand condemned. We stand condemned. We stand condemned before judge and jury. We stand condemned before our spouse, before our children, before our coworkers and our friends. We're guilty and we stand condemned and there's no recourse. You can't unsay what you said. You can't unleave. You can't be un unfaithful. You can't undrink too much. You can't unwork too much. You can't turn the clock back and return your kid's childhood. You can't do it. You create a narrative that allows you to simply just move forward. Except you can't do that either. Because the past, it wasn't designed to be left behind. See, this whole forgive and forget idea, it's, it's difficult at best with other people. But I'll tell you, it's impossible with yourself. It's your story. It's my story. As much as I want to distance myself from it. If you don't resolve it, it stays with you and it travels with you and it will be with you wherever you go. But here's the really great news. And why I thought I'd spend the first 17 minutes depressing you as much as I could. Right? <laughs> Bringing up all the stuff you hoped you'd never have to think about again. Because you don't have to be defined by it. You don't have to be defined by it and you shouldn't be defining yourself by it anymore either. And you don't have to spend any more of your time lying or denying the fact that it happened. There's actually a third option. There's a third option. And someone who experienced this, who experienced this third option in ways that you and I will never fully be able to comprehend is the one who put it into words for us in this book. You see, the Apostle Paul, we talk about him all the time. He wrote something that I want to read. And when I read this, for those of you who grew up in church, you're going to want to shut down a bit. You're going to want to turn off. See, what I'm about to read would have been one of those felt board memory verses, you know, with the, like, lamb and stuff on it. Like, you would have read this memory verse. And so when I read it, you're going to finish it before I, before I finish. And since you're smart enough to finish it before I finish it, you're going to assume you know there are, all there is to know about it. It's going to be easy for you to take a little bit of a nap before lunch. But, man, I want to challenge you. When I read this, I don't want you thinking that I'm reading a, a Bible verse. And for those of you in the room who, have, who want nothing to do with the Bible... Who, who don't even know why you came this morning. Man, I'm so glad you're here. I certainly don't want you thinking I'm reading the Bible verse. What I want you to hear, because it's the truth, is that I'm reading the words of a man. A man who really existed and who really wrote down this story. A man with more regret and guilt than anyone in this room or anyone in your room could ever understand. See, this idea is not theoretical for him. This wasn't preacher man talk that he used to preach in front of people. This wasn't him sitting around with his buddies going, hey, what would be a good story to put in the Bible? These are the words of a man whose life experiences left him broken. And it left him guilty. And it left him shameful. Because the Apostle Paul, who if you grew up in church, you would know this. He, when he shows up on the pages of history, he's originally known as Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus went around arresting people and torturing them and imprisoning them and in a lot of cases executing them all in the name of God, innocent 
men and women, his own people. And later in life, after Paul came face to face with the risen Jesus, and in that moment he understood fully, hey, I made a pretty darn big mistake. He would come face to face again with parents of children that he had beaten. And he would come face to face with children whose parents he had had executed. And he would have to stand in front of spouses who, who are by themselves now because of what he had done. And later in his life, Paul is fully immersed. He is, a, he is a leader in the same community of people whose fathers, sons, daughters, aunts, uncles, he had arrested, beaten, and executed. I can't, I can't imagine the terror. I can't imagine the guilt that he must have felt. He had heard the screams of these people begging him to stop. He heard the cries of the loved ones as they watched. And then these, these thoughts had to have haunted his dreams. And then imagine every town that he went into from that moment forward, he had to go into realizing that he was wrong about what he had done. And that he was going to walk in and meet people who, by the grace of God, had to just fight back any urge they might have just to be able to stand in his presence. But here's the amazing thing about the Apostle Paul. He didn't hide any of it. He didn't have to write that. We didn't have to know that part of his story, but he didn't deny any of it. He documented all of it. And we know his story because he tells us his story. But instead of allowing his guilt to define him, Paul, when he became a follower of Jesus, discovered this third way. And that's what I want you to hear when I read. I want you to hear what he has to say in a letter that he wrote to the church in Nero's Rome. And here's what he has to say. He starts this way. Therefore, therefore there is now no condemnation. Therefore, God is doing something new. It's a new day. It's a completely new era. It's a new covenant and as a result of what God has done there is no condemnation there there's a space there's a space for the reality of your past there's a space where the reality of my past is neither forgotten nor condemning somehow it's faced and it's embraced and it's real and it's there but it, it it's not erased and you no longer have to pretend that it didn't happen. No longer have to live thinking that, that you have to keep telling yourself this narrative or this story. There's excuses just to continue through life. And where is this place? I hope you're asking. And he tells us, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are willing to face the condemnation, the, the condemning truth about themselves and acknowledge it to God and, and respond to him and what he has done for you and respond to his lordship and his leadership and his bossship. Allow him to be the boss of you. You stand uncondemned and you regain your balance. And why is that? Well, it's because through Christ Jesus, that is through a relationship with Jesus by asking him to be the forgiver of your sins and the leader of your life, through this new covenant relationship with God, a relationship with new standards, a relationship with all new rules, a relationship with a completely new way of thinking. Through Jesus Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free 
set you free from the law of sin and death. And the law of sin and death is, is simply this. When you sin, you're stuck. When you know you've done it, you're stuck. There's nothing you can do about it. When you've committed the crime, you're guilty forever. There's nothing you can do about it. That's the law of sin and death. Guilt becomes, guilt stays, and guilt will always be the boss of you. But thankfully, Paul tells us that through Jesus, through Jesus, that is no longer the case for those of you who have put your faith in him. For what the law, for what the law was powerless to do. You see, the only thing the law can do, whether it's your own personal moral law that you're trying to live by, how you should have behaved in that relationship, maybe how you should have behaved in that marriage, how you should have behaved at work or with him or with her, maybe how you should have parented. Maybe it's the federal law or the state law or the municipal law. The only thing the law can do, any law, is set the bar so low. And then once you go below that bar, you're guilty. Once you go below that, there's nothing you can do about it. You're guilty and you're condemned. The law serves only to prove. The law serves only to underscore your guilt. But the law cannot restore you. The law cannot set you free from your past. The law is a constant reminder to you that you are guilty. Good luck. Live with it. Deny it. Come up with your own story, your own narrative. But live the rest of your life limping around and completely off balance because the law cannot set you free. And I don't know what your law is. Paul is speaking to a group of Jewish people who understand the law as the original Hebrew scriptures, and they try to live their life based on that. And he's saying, hey, we've got a new covenant. We've got something new. That, that law cannot set you free. I don't know what your law is. Uh, is. Is your law a set of moral standards that you decided to try and live by when you were, when you were young? Is it a set of moral standards that were placed upon you when you were young? And if you don't live up to those, then you're never going to be good enough. But if you can muster up enough strength to actually do these few things, you're going to be good enough. That law can't save you. That law cannot set you free. But thankfully for you and thankfully for me, what the law was powerless to do, what your law is powerless to do, God did. What the law could never do for you, God did. And he did that by sending his own son, his own son who was perfect, his own son who was guilty of nothing. And he sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. This is why the fact that God came to live amongst us in the person of Jesus Christ is so important. That God didn't send Jesus down here just to show us how to live, though he did. That he didn't just send him down here just to show us how to love, though he did. Just to show us what God was like, though he did that as well. He sent him in the form of sinful flesh to take upon himself what you deserve and what I deserve so that we could be free. So that we could be free because that's the only way we can be free. And so that we wouldn't have to be trapped anymore between either facing it or being defined by it or denying it and living a lie. He said, for what the law cannot do, God did. God did by sending his own son Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh, in your likeness, to be a sin offering for you and for me. That at the cross, Jesus took exactly, he took precisely what you and what I actually deserved. He took it upon himself. And do you know what he took upon himself? I think a lot of people know the answer to that, right? Well, he took my sin. 
He took your sin and, and, and he took it all. He took the sin, which is great. But I got to be honest, it's, it's really even better than that. It's a step further than that. He took upon himself the condemnation associated with your sin. He, he took away the guilt verdict associated with your sin. He took it upon himself. He took divine condemnation. He took away your own self-condemnation. He took all condemnation. God, because of and through Jesus, says, bring your guilt to me. Bring it to me with your eyes wide open. Uh, without any stories or without your narratives or your excuses. And together, here's what we can do. Together we can agree you are guilty. <laughs> you actually broke his heart. You really did lie to get your way. You really were irresponsible with your body. You knew better, and you did it anyway. You're guilty. But here's what's so beautiful. But not condemned. God says, I haven't forgotten. I haven't forgotten. I, I, I know. Like, I know all things. I haven't forgotten. But when I see you, I don't see that. When I see you, I don't see that. And, and he wants you to take it a step further. He wants you to, when you see her, he doesn't want you to see that in her either. And when you see him, he doesn't want you to see that in him either. He wants you to see them the way that he sees you. He goes on and he says, and so he condemned sin. He condemned something. He condemned something, but he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. You know what that means? That means that God has restored you to guiltless relationship with him in spite of your guilt. That God chooses to love you and to listen to you and to relate to you and to be in relationship with you as if it never even happened. You're guilty. You're guilty, but you're not condemned because Jesus already took that upon himself. And so, as I think that you probably think a lot of times, okay, well, what if, so, okay, so that's true. Maybe that's true, but what does it mean? Like, what, what does that mean for me? You might be thinking, okay, what's the difference? What, what difference does any of this actually make? In my life. Well, for those of us who have, and for any of those who, who may today or at any point in your life, choose to step into that relationship, that new covenant relationship with God through Jesus by asking Him to be the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our life. There are four, <laughs> anybody catch that? Four implications. <laughs> there are four things that I wanted to share with you, four truths really that come out of this. The first one is this you forfeit the right to condemn yourself because you're not yours anymore. You forfeit the right to condemn yourself. You're, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. You've already been paid for. Guilt and condemnation are no longer the boss of you. For those of you who put your faith in Jesus, you have a new, a better boss. So just tell that toxic voice that, of shame that keeps speaking inside. Yeah, yeah I understand I'm guilty. I'm, I'm not dumb. But I'm not condemned. And I have no right to condemn myself anymore. Number two, your guilt will remind you, but not define you. You did it. I feel like I'm kind of beating a dead horse on that one. We've got to figure it out. You did it, right? It happened. You can't undo anything, but you're not what you did. 
You are not what you did. Your past is simply a reminder. And it's a reminder for you to look up. It's a reminder for you to look up with so much gratitude for God and remember what he has already done for you. Your past will remind you, but not define you. Number three, you forfeit the right to condemn others because that would make you a hypocrite. You forfeit the right to, to write others off because of the wrongs that they've committed or the things that they've done. You, you forfeit the right to just push them aside and care about them no more. You, you are perfectly positioned now to love the unlovable because you were unlovable. You, you were in a perfect position to forgive the unforgivable because you were unforgivable. You have freely received something that you could have never paid for. How dare you not give freely? And then fourth, you're free to make restitution without expectation and without excuses. You see, being reconciled to God in an uncondemned relationship with him through Jesus is not this. It's not, hey, I hurt you. I betrayed you. I, I understand. I know my guilt. And so I'm going to go back to my prayer closet here and I'm going to ask forgiveness. And now we're good. And now we're good. That's not following Jesus. That's not being a Christian. No, no. Following Jesus is this. I hurt you. I hurt you and I've recognized that. I, I've faced my guilt and I've, I've stood before God and I've asked for his forgiveness. Now I am free to come to you and seek restitution with you by admitting my fault and seeking your forgiveness. That's following Jesus. You seeking restitution. You making an apology with a willingness to take responsibility for your actions, it actually has the power to unlock a vault of bitterness that's been eating someone alive for the, from the inside. You see, so much of what we've been talking about so far in this series is the fact that what we say and what we do, it puts us at odds with God. Well, why does it put us at odds with God? Because we hurt and it puts us at odds with God's people. And so to be right with God and wrong with people, it doesn't work. So, so let me ask you this question. It may seem like a little bit of a left turn, but I, I don't think that it really is. Is there someone in your life? Is there someone in your life waiting for you to make the first move? Is there someone in your past that they're carrying around the shrapnel of what you did to them? Or what you didn't do for them? And they're just hoping and waiting and pretty much in disbelief that it would ever really happen. That you'd come and say something, even though they've kind of written off the idea. I mean, you've moved on, right? You've moved on, and you're successful now, and you've got a new job. You've got a whole new family. You live in a new state now. Like, you, you don't even have a conscience about this thing. At least that's what they think. It hasn't bothered you, although it's been churning and eating them alive on the inside. This question isn't meant to condemn you or make you feel guilty again. That's not the goal. This question is to remind you of the freedom that you found from condemnation because of the work and the finished work of Jesus in your life. You've received so much from him. You, you've received so much freedom for him. It seems a little bit unfair to leave those that you've hurt in bondage. Remember, the things that come out of our heart, it puts us at odds with God because it puts us at odds with God's people. So what, what can you do today? What can you do today to change that for somebody else, to, to unlock that vault of bitterness in their life, to change their lives going forward because they know that you cared enough about them to come and make it right with them. So often we're slow to make restitution with people, and, and we're slow because we fear the consequences of confession more than the consequences of concealment. Like it's so much harder to confess than it is to just 
conceal and try and continue to rewrite that narrative so that we can live with it. And that's a huge mistake. That's a huge mistake because that, <laughs> that will make shame and deny, that will make guilt the boss of you. Now, we did this last week. I don't know if it'll be uh, something we'll do every week. And I don't know, we're just two weeks in. But, and nobody wants to play, but I would like you to play with me. That We're going to say this together, okay? I'm going to put it up there once. We're just going to say it once. So just read it with me when it comes up, okay? Here we go. My past will remind me. It will not define me. My past will remind me. It will not define me. And here's the ultimate, right? Guilt, <laughs> you're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. I'm, I'm going to face my past. I'm going to own up to my past. But you're not going to control me anymore. It, it's embarrassing, but embarrassment, you're not the boss of me either. I, I still feel some shame at times. Shame, you're certainly not the boss of me either. And I have found this place. <laughs> I, I personally have found this place of living in this understanding of I know I'm guilty and that I find so much joy and thankfulness in the fact that I'm not condemned because of the finished work of Jesus in my life. And I found this and I, and I sit in this place for one reason. Because at one point in my life when I realized my guilt, when I realized the hurt that I had caused, when I, when I realized the things that I had done in my life and the hurt that it caused my Heavenly Father, I confessed my need for a Savior. I confessed it. I said, I, I can't do this on my own. This law that I've been trying to live by cannot set me free. I confessed my, my need and I declared my trust in him. I declared my trust in Jesus as the only one who can set me free. And I asked him to be the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life. And that same invitation is available for you today. So I'm going to pray. And when I pray, like, you can just simply repeat words after I say them in, in whatever way that, that fits you best. And just ask him, ask him to be your forgiver from this day forward. And everything's different. Your eternity changes in this moment. Would you pray with me? Repeat this after me. Just say, God, I confess my need for a Savior. And God, I declare that I have trust in you and in the finished work of Jesus to be the forgiveness that I need. And Jesus, I ask you, would you be the forgiver of my sins and the leader of my life? God, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for what you did. I'm so grateful that I can live a life somehow fully aware of what my past was, even the mistakes that I might make in the future, knowing full well that I'm guilty. And yet at the same time, somehow amazingly not condemned by you. The only one with the real right to do the condemning. God, I want to pray that for all of us in here, any thoughts that came to their minds, anything that I, I, I drug up from the past, I did not do that to be hurtful. I, I did that so that in this moment, any of us who are currently following you, we can look to you and be grateful for the work that you've done in our lives and we can walk out these doors victorious knowing that you've already won the battle. God, would you be with those of us that are walking towards you? Would you help us to live our lives for you so that we might bring more impact into this world? Lord, we love you. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.